Hello, this is Adal Neme from DataCup, and welcome to Data Framed, a podcast covering all things data and its impact on organizations across the world. You know when we say that an organization is data-driven, what do we truly mean? While there are many competing definitions that point to skills, infrastructure, culture, and a lot more factors, we know that data-driven organizations extract value and insights from data at scale. For this to happen, trust in data and data quality are investments organizations need to sustain for the long haul. This is why I'm excited to be speaking with Bar Moses. Bar Moses is the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo, a data reliability company backed by Axel, GGV, Redpoint, and other top Silicon Valley investors. Previously, she was VP of Customer Operations at Gainsight, a management consultant at Bain & Company, and served in the Israeli Air Force as a commander of an intelligence data analyst unit. Barr graduated from Stanford with a Bachelor's of Science in Mathematical and Computational Science. In this episode, Barr and I talk about her background, the state of data-driven organizations and what it means to be data-driven, the data maturity of organizations, the importance of data quality, what data observability is, and why we'll hear more about it in the future. We also cover the state of data infrastructure, data meshes, and more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Barr, make sure to also download our Guide to Data Maturity white paper, which discusses a holistic overview of data maturity and the steps organizations can take to scale the value they reap from data. We made sure to include a link in the show notes. If you want to check out previous episodes of the podcasts and show notes, make sure to go to www.datacamp.com community podcast. Bar, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be speaking to you about the state of data-driven organizations, data quality, data reliability, and all the cool things Monte Carlo is working on. Before we get started, I'd love if you can walk us through your background and how you got into the data space. Yeah, happy to. So um, I was actually originally born and raised in Israel. I first, I was actually drafted to the Israeli Air Force, um, and so was a, was a commander of a data analyst unit. Um, I moved to the Bay Area about a decade ago. Um, my background after that is in, in math and stats. Um, and uh, I actually, I thought I was going to go into academia, but um, uh, uh, my dad is actually a physics professor. And so I thought that I was going to follow his footsteps, but um, ended up uh, having to, it was my big fail my dad moment um, when I didn't, didn't continue, um, maybe sometime later in the future. But um, instead, actually... Um, went to uh, work for a consulting company called Bain & Co., um, where I worked mostly with companies actually on on, on their sort of data strategy and, and operations, um, and later on joined Gainsight, which is a customer success uh, company, um, where I was very fortunate to be at the company at a time of very fast growth and uh, work with some great people, learn about how to create a new category, Gainsight, um, help create the customer success category, um, and you know built a number of different functions, among them the customer data and analytics team, where we were responsible for our data internally and also for um, surfacing our data to our customers um, and helping them see value from it. Um, and so those were some of my experiences with, with data uh, and actually how, how I've encountered sort of the, the problem of, of data downtime uh, prior to starting Monte Carlo uh, a few years ago. That's great. And how have these experiences led you to founding Monte Carlo? And can you walk us through that journey, please? 
Definitely. So when I was at Gainsight, I sort of mentioned I was responsible for the team, um, uh, sort of responsible for customer data and analytics. And, you know, we were um, uh, sort of starting to get really data driven as a company, right? Which meant that basically we had a lot more data that we were analyzing, a lot more data they were storing and collecting, um, and a lot more users were actually depending on this data. Among them were our executives, our CEO, um, actually using using the data to make decisions on, you know, what new products to launch, which customers to focus on, um, you know, where we're seeing the most traction, kind of, you know, pretty basic questions about the business that you'd want to have answered with data. Um, and, you know, uh, kind of the person responsible for this data, my experience was I would wake up basically every Monday morning to this like barrage of email uh, emails asking me questions about the data you know, why is the report here wrong? Why does the data look not fresh here? What happened to this graph? It's suddenly all null values. Like lots of people just asking sort of confused questions about the data, which led to a fundamental sort of distrust in the data, right? Um, which was really frustrating to me, right? I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why, why do we continue to have all these problems? And on top of that, it felt like every time that there was a problem, it took us also like a very long time to figure out what was the root cause. So for example, if a report was wrong, it could be because the report was not refreshed. It, it could be because, you know, one of the tables in the data warehouse didn't get updated. It could be because one of the third party sources that we were relying on, you know, made a change in their API. There could be so many different reasons for why the data was wrong. And it took us a really long time to both learn about it and learn about the root cause and fix it. Um, and I remember that as being a really frustrating experience for myself. And then in talking to other, um, you know, data organizations and other um uh, data uh, people in other companies, I recognize that I wasn't the only one ex experiencing this. In fact, this was something that felt really ubiquitous in the sense that, you know, if you were in data, you experienced something like this. Um, and, you know, sort of that kind of got me thinking, right? Like, why are we, why don't we have better ways to manage this problem, right? And do we even have the right language to describe this problem? Um, and so in starting Monte Carlo, I actually spoke to um, hundreds of data leaders from very small startups to large organizations um, like Netflix and Uber, uh, where, you know, data is, is sort of core uh, to their mission, and learned a few things. Well, one, learned that, you know, um, as I mentioned, like every company runs runs into this problem. And two, it's a really unsolved problem, the sort of question of like, how do we trust the data? How do we know that data is reliable? Um, and so actually decided to start Monte Carlo with this, with the mission to help organizations become data-driven by minimizing what I think is the biggest problem today, which is data downtime, uh, which is sort of the term that we coined for describing incidents when data is wrong or inaccurate or just can't be trusted. So I'm really excited to discuss with you all the cool things Monte Carlo is working on. Uh, but before we do that, you mentioned here the state of data-driven organizations. And one thing I'd like to discuss with you is really the state of data science and the march for organizations to become data-driven. Um, you know, over the past decade, we've seen tons of investments in tools, infrastructure, and hiring. But that doesn't mean organizations are making the most of their data or are necessarily data-driven. Uh, this is something I've seen you write and speak about. Can you walk us through how how you would define a data-driven organization? That is such a great question because I feel like we are throwing around the term data-driven for like about a decade. And I'm not sure there's like, there's always something 
you know, concrete behind that, right? So when a company says, we really become want to become data-driven, what does that mean, right? Sometimes it can be really surface level. It can be someone just like woke up one day and they're like, I want to become data-driven. And then, you know, like hire 400 data scientists and, you know, invest in tool X and that's it. Call it a day. We're data-driven, right? Success. <laughs> um, but but it's not that simple, right? Um it, it, it incorporates what I think really requires um, both a mindset shift, an organizational and cultural shift that needs to be supported by technology, right? But you can't have one or the other. Um, and it certainly is not a surface level um, initiative uh, when done well, right? And I'd say today, you know, there's probably two main use cases that we see companies um, using data for, you know, this is really simplifying it, but like very, very in a simplified way. One, it could be using data to drive, you know, digital products, right? It could be in the product. Second, it could be um, to actually make decisions, whether that's based on sort of machine learning models or other sort of ways to actually, you know, determine, you know, what's right, um, what's right for our, our business or what sort of strategy are we taking um, or sort of da- data-driven decision-making. Um, and I think we have a long way to go on, on both of those fronts, right? And so, um, when people typically ask me, like, how, how do we actually create like a data driven culture? What does that look like? Um, I think that starts with, you know, obviously collecting data and storing data and making sure that you have data accessible for everyone in the organization. Right. So even if you have you know a team of, of um, data scientists or data engineers, or data analysts, um, that's where the journey begins. Right. But truly becoming data-driven is when marketing and sales and customer success and product are all um, very strong customers of the data organization and work hand-in-hand with them um, to make these decisions and and to power the business. And that's really when you see the competitive advantage of becoming data-driven. Very often, we still see you know, companies and organizations say, okay, we don't really have the data here or we can't really trust the data. Heck, whatever. Let's just like resort to gut-based decision-making, right? You know, um, or, you know, we'll have a conversation with someone and they'll be like, yeah, you know, we're not really data-driven. We sort of like make decisions based on like what we think of or some of the instincts. Um, and we, there's definitely room for instincts um, and for gut-based decision-making in, in companies. And certainly, you know, in new categories or new markets, you can definitely have an argument for that. Um, but I really don't think there's any excuse for a company today to not use data and to not, you know, at least um, start their journey in becoming data-driven, right? Um, and there's definitely different sort of, you know, you can sort of plot people or plot companies on sort of a maturity curve, right? Like how early are you in your um, in the maturity of your business um, in terms of becoming data-driven? And we actually worked with organizations to help sort of create this journey, um, you know, whether it's like in the early days um, where you really just sort of you know, very reactive, trying to figure out sort of what data to work with, all the way to sort of having sort of best in class, um, very scalable and automated um, uh, ways to empower people to make uh, decisions in real time with data. Um, so I think we're we've definitely come a very long way in the last five day in the last five years. Um, and today, when companies say, you know, we we want to become data driven or we're on the path to become data driven, there's a lot more behind that, and there's a lot more that we know how to do, whether it's or organizationally, culturally, or from a technology perspective. That's spot on. And you mentioned here the organizational dimension, cultural and technological dimensions to becoming data-driven. Uh, what do you think are some of the main challenges affecting organizations who truly want to make the most of their data? 
Yeah, that's a, that, that's a tough question, right? Because I think for, you know, if you think about sort of the, there's, in terms of, you know, what does it stop us from becoming data-driven? You know, in, in a way, sort of the last, um, you know, the last year or so, you know, with COVID-19, that has really redefined and, you know, completely changed how we think about work and how we think about uh, data in particular, right? And so in some ways, that has actually accelerated, um everything around the cloud and data, and also sort of fast-tracked all of the challenges that we see, right? Um, and so I think there's there's probably three main trends that we see that are contributing to these challenges. Um, the first is there's a lot more data, right? Um, you know, especially if you sort of think about like the rise of fintech companies recently, right? Like um, financial technology or financial services companies heavily rely on third party data and there's just a lot of it, right? So it's not uncommon for a company to have thousands of data sources that they rely on. Um, and, you know, that's sort of, sort of the first trend. I would say the second trend is that there's a um, stronger, like more reliance on data. So actually, you know, to your previous question, people today understand that data is important, that it's important to become a data-driven organization in order to create an advantage for yourself. If Honestly, if you don't want to be left behind, you need to be thinking about how to become data-driven. Um, and so as companies rely more on data to power their products, to power their decision-making, um, that means that they are also, you know, th- the stakes are higher for data. It's just like, you can't afford to make as many mistakes uh, when when there's higher reliance, there's more eyes on data. People care more a lot, care more about it. Um, it's it's a bigger deal, right? And then I would say the third trend is we're seeing this, um, you know, uh, fragmentation of what I would call sort of the modern data stack, right? Our data infrastructure and our data pipelines today are really complex, right? There's a lot of different systems that you can be using. People have choices, right? So you might have one team, you know, running on Snowflake and Looker, and you have another team running on, you know, S3, Athena, Hive, and Tableau, and, you know, a third team running on something totally different, Um there's really so many options that you could go with, um, and and you know th- there there isn't quite yet a standard stack. Um, and so as we see sort of these sort of three trends, you know, um, really kind of happening the last few years, I think they're going to continue in the next decade, in the next five to ten years, I will say, and will only exacerbate the challenges that we're seeing organizations who want to become data driven. And from what I see, you know, the the number one problem that people have as soon as they want to become data-driven is sort of what I kind of refer to as trust in data, right? Or data trust. Um, The number thing, the number one thing that people run into is like, okay, we have all this data, we have all these reports, we have all this like machine learning models that we can use. Awesome. Like, let's go. Let's like, let's start writing, let's start using. And then suddenly someone is like, hey, hold on a second. There's like stale data here that's impacting my model. Or wait just a second, I'm looking at this table and you know what? The values here don't make sense to me. They're all negative and there shouldn't be negative. Like that's really weird. And then the next question is people are like, well, I don't even know where this data come from or who's using it or should I be using it? Should I be using some other table? And all of that leads to one big question of like, can I even trust this data? And I think that until we solve that, that is going to remain the single most important challenge in order to become truly data-driven. 
Okay, that's awesome. And I want to talk to you here about potential remedies for these challenges. And one thing that is central to Monte Carlo's mission is the importance of data quality. And here you're mentioning it as one of the challenges organization face, which is trust in data. So as data becomes even more critical for decision making and product development, data quality can have massive implications for an organization. Can you outline your thinking around data quality and what you think are key components of a successful data quality strategy? Definitely. So, you know, the problem of data quality is not new, right? It's been around for 40 something years. Um, But I think the way that we've been thinking about data quality needs to adapt to the new way that we think about data and data infrastructure. So I'll explain what I mean. Um, You know, there's this saying of kind of like garbage in, garbage out, right? Um, Which was really, you know, appropriate for, you know, I would say what is for the traditional way of thinking about data quality, right? Where if you sort of think about the standard pipeline, the standard way, we kind of had like one ingestion point. And then you just needed to make sure that the data that you're ingesting is of high quality. And then you knew that the data that you were using was going to be of high quality, right? So there was one point at which you needed to make sure that the data is accurate. Um, and I think that, you know, for the last couple of decades is really what data quality was centered around, right? Profiling the data, making sure that, you know, whatever you're ingesting is of high integrity, and then making sure that, um, uh, you know, sort of on the other end of that, you're using that data appropriately. However, the challenge with that in today's world is that um, the, the way that we manage data has become a lot more sophisticated. And so you might start by ingesting into the data, but then you have so many transformations, different layers um, of, of the data down downstream, right? So you might have a data lake, maybe multiple data warehouses, ETL, ELT, um, uh, BI, machine learning models, et cetera. And data can actually go wrong at any step of the process, not only just upon ingestion, right? Um, on top of that, there are different people in different organizations in different steps of this process. You sort of imagine this pipeline, you know, all the way on the left side from ingestion to all the way on the right side to actually consumption of the data in reports or machine learning models. Um, there are different peoples along that step, right? So in the past, there was only like one organization or maybe one or a couple people were really responsible for the data. Today, you have engineers upstream and then you know, maybe you'll have a product uh, data a data product manager, and then you might have you know a data scientist or a data analyst um, or data engineer, and then you might have an ML engineer, and you have all these different titles and people, and they can all contribute to the problem of data downtime, um, right? And so, I think in order to really think about um, a strong data quality strategy, requires thinking through what are you trying to solve through. Right? Are you trying to um, like where is where is the source of the problem typically, um, and uh, and how are you addressing not only the question of like where data is breaking, but also who owns that problem, right? And who's actually going to fix the data quality issue? You know, one thing we see data teams struggle with is really trying to gain executive or leadership buy-in around data quality initiatives. How would you go about uh, determining return on investment over data quality initiatives so that data teams are better equipped uh, to get this buy-in? That's a great question. You know, I think in terms of sort of getting buy-in and getting sort of executive alignment or, or, or just alignment in general, right, across the organization in order to get a data quality um, initiative, I think there's a few things, right? Um, ROI is certainly being one of them, but taking a step back for a second, 
the first thing is that you actually need buy-in that, that data quality is an important thing to anchor on, right? Um, and and actually, you know, some of our customers will ask me, like, is data quality something that, like, I just need to invest in as a one-time initiative and then, you know, I'll forget about it for the next five years? Or is this something that I need to think about consistently? Like, you know, how much how much calorie input should I consider in this? And, you know, I think for a company that's really becoming data-driven and a company that's truly putting data at the forefront, data quality or data observability, whatever you call it, it has to be a consistent top-line kind of thing that you're thinking about all the time. You know, it, it has to be part and parcel in terms of like the same way that you're thinking about how to make data accessible, how to store the data, how to analyze it. You need to also make sure that you're thinking about how to trust it, right? Um, and so when you think specifically about the impact of data quality and how we measure that, and that goes back to your question of ROI, there's two main metrics that we think about. Um, one of them is time to detection, which really refers to how long it actually takes the team to identify an issue, right? So oftentimes we actually work, you know, with in sort of speaking with companies, um, it could take them months to detect a data quality problem. And that's not uncommon, right? Because maybe some table, you know, sort of broke down somewhere and just there, there, nothing was alerting on that, right? So how are you supposed to know, right? There might be all these like silent failures um, impacting your business and you're learning about them weeks or months later. And those silent errors can have like, you know, many millions of dollars in impact on your business. So you can't really afford to prolong the time for detection here. Um, and so time to detection is a very important metric. The second key metric is time to resolution and that, you know, pretty straightforward metrics like how quickly are you able to resolve a data incident once you're alerted on that, right? Um, and how many people are involved in that process? Um, and so all, you know, both of these metrics together give you a strong sense um, like how strong operationally your company is, is in actually resolving, uh, sort of managing data quality. And I think having a very strong lens on these along with sort of what we call data downtime, um, how, how are you improving on data downtime overall will give you, again, a good sense of sort of the, the ROI and the impact of, of data quality. 100% and zeroing in on the problem of alignment between the data team and executive team, how important do you view the role of data literacy when fostering alignment and when scaling data science in the organization? Yeah, I think data literacy is, you know, probably one of the most important things that companies can in, can invest in is sort of a really kind of like table stakes um, investment, right? And and let's define for a second what does data literacy means, right? I don't think data literacy means everyone in the entire company needs to learn SQL or R or whatnot, right? Um, that's not data literacy, right? That's I don't think that's necessarily the goal. I think what we need to define is how do we want each team or how do we want our company to engage with data? How um, what kind of decisions or what kind of um, goals are we going to drive based on data? So it always has to go back to the business outcomes, right? So it starts with saying, what does our company want to achieve this year? Um, what's sort of like the big, hairy, audacious goal that we're going after? And based on that, what kind of data does our team need to work with in order to get there, right? I actually, you know, it was one chief data officer that I spoke with that actually created this matrix um, you know, where you can see on sort of one axis, the different teams, uh, the different functions like, you know, marketing, sales, customer success, product, R&D, um, et cetera. And then on another function is sort of the different kind of skill sets um, and data and the different languages, right? So, um, and basically kind of like 
um, provided a score um, for every company, for every function, sorry, with um, with goals. So, you know, the marketing function literacy is obviously very different than like product or engineering. Um, but having some way of saying, this is how much we think, you know, a team uh, should be able to do with data. And this is what we expect folks to be able to, um, to work with data will basically create sort of a baseline across the company so that people across different functions could use data effectively. Um, so I think there's a little bit, you know, when we say data literacy, there's a little bit of a, of a risk that, you know, we sort of go overboard in one direction. I think it's really important that we, we, we agree it's very important, but we tie it back to what are we trying to achieve with data? It's not data literacy just for the sake of it. It's for the sake of empowering us to, um, to achieve better outcomes. Yeah. So another thing that is central to Monte Carlo's mission is the concept of data observability. So this is a relatively nascent term and is an emerging category in the data space. So can you define data observability and how it can help so many organizations' data quality problems? Definitely. So I think this the concept of observability is a very interesting one. It actually, you know, it originally stems sort of from from the um, from the world of software engineering and DevOps, right? Um, so you know, if you think about observability in the concept of software engineering, it's it's a concept that has emerged in the last couple of decades as a fast growing area that really supports DevOps teams who manage application and infrastructure downtime, right? Um, and so these teams. Um, track metrics that help understand the health of their systems, right? So observability really speaks to the ability to determine the health of a system by observing its output. Um, now, companies, you know, manage infrastructure and application downtime really diligently, right? Like you can't imagine, you know, a company sort of, you know, apps just going down or if their website just going down, like, you know, today we sort of map what we call like five nines, right? Every company needs to have five nines of, of um, application uptime um, or sort of strives to that, right? Um, and, and you know, that the sort of the tools of, of DevOps observability has helped its software engineers better manage the health of their applications and their infrastructure. Um, and, you know, today you can't really imagine any engineering team, you know, operating without something like, you know, um, New Relic or App Dynamics or Datadog or Grafana, right? Like some of these sort of um, tools that help engineers make sure that their apps and infrastructure are up and running. Now, if you think about that corollarily in the world of data, we actually are trying to do the same thing in terms of like running really a, a complex system and having like, you know, really great data that we can rely on but we don't have the tools to manage them, right? Which is a little bit crazy. Like we don't have, we don't actually have the corollary of that um, in, in data. And yet we are holding ourselves to this very high standard of creating very reliable, fast, speedy, and efficient data systems, right? Which is kind of crazy. Um, and so actually, you know, what I strongly believe in is that we need to take the same concept of observability and apply that to data, right? So if you think about like, what does it mean to have really reliable, trusted data, we actually sort of broke down sort of data observability into five core pillars that we believe that if you um, monitor for and, um, and, you know, really sort of think holistically about these five pillars, then you can have a strong sense of the health of your data. Um, and so these five pillars are actually I'll walk through them quickly, but the first is freshness, uh, which speaks to the timeliness of the data. You know, as is the data arriving on time, like for a particular table, let's say it gets updated like five times a day and it hasn't been updated at all today. What does that tell me, right? Is there an issue or not? Um, the second is volume. So the volume of the data, 
you know, if I expect sort of 10 rows and suddenly I'm getting a million rows, you know, what has changed and why? Um, the third is distribution. So this is sort of a whole slew of metrics around um, the field level and the values of the data. So, you know, I gave previously an example. I say I have a table that's like fully populated, but it's all kind of like null values or negative values, um, very different from what I expect. Um, uh, you know, there might be an issue. And then the fifth pillar is lineage. And lineage is sort of both the table field and table level and at the field level really helps us, you know, get a view of the data. And for a particular asset, all the sort of upstream dependencies on it, uh, upstream, um, you know, which could give us clues to sort of the root cause of a particular problem and all the downstream dependencies of table asset, which could give us an understanding of the um, impact of a particular problem. And so together, these five pillars can actually bring you the confidence and the visibility into the health of your data and makes it easy to understand, um, you know, sort of quantify the impact of, of data quality on a particular business. And so what we see best in class sort of data teams do is not only think about, you know, sort of great infrastructure and great pipelines, but also think about great data and high quality data and how to actually manage the data in a way that um, I can actually trust it. That's awesome. And how does Monte Carlo intend to solve these problems? And can you walk us through some example use cases that you've worked on? Yeah. So luckily, the solution or, you know, the way that I think we need to approach it is, is also something that we can borrow from, from software engineering and from the best practices of DevOps, right? Um, so before sort of talking about what, you know, I think the, the best solution is, I'll, I'll just speak to like what people might be doing today, right? So there's a lot of, you know, most data teams or many data teams have traditionally resorted to sort of manual ways of making sure the data is trusted. And what do I mean by that? You know, there might be a team of sort of tens or hundreds of people who are literally just staring at dashboards and making sure that the numbers are accurate, right? Like I remember personally when I was responsible for um, uh, a particular report that, you know, our CEO, you know, was and, and our board was sort of relying on, you know, me and my team, we would wake up every day and spot check like hundreds of data points in that dashboard to make sure that nothing has changed, the data is still accurate, and we can still use it, right? And if by chance something was off, we'd basically spend the rest of the day trying to understand what happened and why, right? So very, very manual ways of making sure that the data is accurate. I think that would have worked fine five or 10 years ago when there was like, you know, maybe just a small handful of people using data really not often, right? And maybe once or twice a year. Today's world, we have thousands of people in a company that are relying on data in real time, right? It could be, you know, maybe the entire company is actually using data in real time in some organizations. And so you can't possibly think that like a manual um, process is going to be sufficient, right? We have to be crazy to do that. And so, so if you take sort of the concept of observability and apply that here, I actually think we need to think about the corollary of that, sort of like a new relic or app dynamics or data dog, but for your data, right? And what does that mean? It's a solution, a data observability platform that can help with the instrumentation, the monitoring, the alerting, and the collaboration and the resolution of these data issues that are sort of encapsulating these five pillars that I talked about. Um, I think a strong data observability solution needs to connect to your existing stack and to connect to it end to end, right? Meaning it's not sufficient to just have data quality or data anomaly on a particular part of your stack, like just a couple tables in your data warehouse or just, you know, a particular sort of um, data set. You actually, to really sort of um, address this problem, it has to include 
wherever your data is. So including your data lake and your data warehouse and your BI or your machine learning models. Um, and you have to have that in end-to-end visibility from ingestion all the way to consumption. Um, you know, I also think that you need to think about um, how do you provide sort of uh, rich context to each of these sort of, um, you know, problems that that sort of your, the platform identifies. Um, and so having sort of strong root cause tools in place um, will help you uh, will help you actually determine quickly what the problem is and how to resolve that. Um, and actually, probably the best um, kind of way to approach this is to prevent these issues from happening in the first place. And so what we're finding is that by exposing some of these best practice um, observability in data, where companies are actually able to reduce their data downtime by 90% um, just by implementing some of these, um, uh, you know, sort of best practices and, and bringing more awareness around, you know, what does our data look like? What is the health of it? And sort of, you know, more metadata um, to help us determine uh, the, the health of, of our data. This is really exciting. And now one thing you mentioned, especially at the end here, is metadata. Can you speak to us on the rise of metadata management tools and data lineage tools and how you see them impacting organizations? Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the the whole kind of emergence of the metadata uh, space has been super fascinating, right? I think in the last couple of decades, we've become really good at kind of like collecting and tracking data. We've actually gotten to a point where we're like hoarding data. You're like, the more, the better, right? Like, bring it on, <laughs> you know, just, just wherever it is, you know, let's just collect it more. And often what we see is that, you know, companies typically have more data than they can ever manage, let alone process or analyze or like make sense of. Um, and they often sort of start drowning in, in lots of data and asking questions like, okay, what data do I really need? And then starting, you know, there's like a gold, um, you know, gold, silver, you know, what have you. And, you know, like tier one, tier two, tier three data. And there's all these like different, um, you know, acronyms like, uh, you know, um, uh, ARR revenue one or ARR revenue two, you know, like all these like different uh, sort of naming conventions to like make sure that you're using the right, um, the right data set. Um and it gets really, really complicated, right? And and potentially we're actually like, it's like self-inflicted pain in some way, right? And I think what we're seeing in the metadata space is actually kind of like in the same way, there's this rise of metadata where we're like, oh, you know, there's a lot of data that we can collect about our data, how awesome that is. And now we're just like starting to hoard that a little bit, right? And companies are like, let's collect lots of meta- metadata. I'll just say something really controversial for a, th- for a second. I think metadata by itself is completely useless. There is nothing that you can do with just metadata on itself that's actually practically helpful to your business. I think metadata is very incredibly valuable when put in the right context with the right business outcome in mind, right? So I'll take lineage, for example. Lineage is something that people like, get really excited about. Oh my God, like show me you know, the best sort of lineage map of my business. They look at it for five minutes and they're like, okay, let's move on to the next shiny object, right? <laughs> like, I'm done, right? Um, but where does the power of lineage come from, right? Lineage is valuable when it's used in a particular um, context and, a, and to solve a particular problem. So, for example, if there is a particular table that is not get, has not gotten updated, maybe like, there's a specific freshness problem, but you know what? There's zero dependencies on that table downstream. So who cares about that table? Maybe it's not being used at all. So I shouldn't care. I shouldn't worry about that. I don't need to like know about that. Maybe I just need to deprecate that table. On the other hand, if there's a particular table that's not getting updated and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dependencies on it, specifically those dependencies are 
users that are making decisions about the business, or there's actually customers that are um, uh, getting access to that data, or maybe these are like, you know, mission critical machine learning model. Um, in all of those instances, you want to know about that freshness problem as soon as possible, right? And so this is an example where an understanding, a strong understanding of lineage can help you operate your, your infrastructure better, can help you operate your business better, not just lineage for the sake of lineage. Um, and so I think we need to get a lot smarter about metadata and particularly apply it in the context of solving real customer problems. That's where, that's really where the magic happens. Definitely agree with you here on business value alignment. So pivoting away slightly from talking about data quality to just data infrastructure in general, another thing that's often talked about this year is really the rise of the data mesh and how it can potentially solve some of the bottlenecks of the current paradigm in data infrastructure. I would love your thoughts on what these bottlenecks are and what a data mesh is and how would it solve these problems. So I think, you know, the concept of data mesh has really, as you mentioned, like become more and more of a hot topic recently. And I think it's it's it ties back to really everything that we just discussed, right? More and more organizations want to become data-driven, realize that it's important in order to become um, competitive in markets. It's, it's important in order to become successful in business. Um, more and more data sources, more and more data consumers, frag- fragmentation of of the the data stack, et cetera, all of these actually um, blend to this sort of um, point in which companies are asking themselves, what is the best way to organize ourselves or to organize um, our organization in a way that helps us adopt data, right? Um, and you know, in the current model, you know, the the sort of the more data that they, the sort of the the historical notion has been, the more data you have, the better. Um, but actually. At the point that we're at today, you know, some of the bottlenecks include, um, you know, data that's not being used at all, um, data uh, teams using different kinds of data. So, you know, maybe the finance team will use a particular data set, but the sales team will use a different data set and the customer success team will use a different data set. And so all three teams are relying on data, but they might come to totally different conclusions about what needs to happen in the business because they've just been using different data sets or looking at different um, metrics or, or interpreting data in a different way, right? Um and so, you know, as every company sort of strives to become a data company, there's different use cases that emerge. And as a data engin- engineering team, you're really trying to serve lots of different use cases and lots of different consumers um, in a way that can be really, really challenging. Um, and so that, you know, one of the, the most common sort of questions that, you know, I sort of get from, from customers is, you know, we are responsible for the trust of the data. We're responsible of kind of our, our, our analysts or our customers wanting to use data, but we can't actually fix the problems in data. Why? Because it's sort of the teams that are upstream from us who are producing the data, potentially, you know, an engineering team. So, so a data team will be somewhere in the middle of the chain where downstream from us, we might have, um, you know, people consuming the data that, you know, we're, we're um uh, we're working with and upstream from us might be, you know, an engineering team that's producing the data, for example. And so, you know, I might be on sort of the receiving end of lots of questions around, you know, when was the data updated? When was it last refreshed? But I don't actually own the data to the point that I can fix any of those problems because it's a different team. Um, and so in those cases, oftentimes starts this culture of sort of finger pointing and blaming and saying, wait, hold on. It's like this other team that's responsible for that part of the data pipeline. And you know what? I can't really solve that. And so there's lots of questions of ownership and 
um, that leads to a, to a situation where it's hard to become data driven, right? And so then the question is, you know, who actually owns the data? What's the best way to structure this? Is there a centralized model? Should there be one team that sort of owns everything with a center of excellence? Or should there be like distributed teams with embedded data people within organi- within different functions? And we see companies all across the spectrum, all the way from centralized to completely de- decentralized, right? And so within the context of all of this, and sort of the topic of data mesh, which again actually sort of borrows on concepts from um, from software engineering, and sort of you know defined by uh, uh, Jamak Degani from ThoughtWorks, um, and this basically you know brings kind of the theory of dom- domain driven design um, to the concept of um, data infrastructure, and really what the, what sort of the idea here is a proposal for how kind of to solve the question of ownership and accessibility and to solve the problem of silos. And basically, you know, by bringing the best of both worlds where you can have, you know, sort of a universal domain agnostic and automated approach to things that need to be standardized at the company level, like data governance, data lineage, data monitoring, sort of best practices. And on top of that, have domain specific or kind of like, um, uh, you know, autonomous teams that have ownership uh, across their data pipelines. And in those cases, empowering those teams with self-serve discoverability, self-serve observability, um, and others' tools uh, in order to really, truly um, adopt data. And so the concept here is how can we organize our people and our organization and our tools in a way that allows us to become data-driven? Um, I will say it's sort of the early days of, of data mesh. And so I think companies mostly sort of ask themselves, like, you know, how do I actually adopt this? What would be sort of the, you know, what are the first steps uh, to do that? And, um, you know, I think it also, uh, it's, there's something about this concept and how simple it is that's very appealing um, in in the sense of sort of enabling, enabling organizations to fast track their, uh, their path to becoming data driven. Mm -hmm. And how do you see data mesh adoption growing in the future? Well, I actually, um, you know, you know, in terms of sort of the the, if you think about the last couple of years and how quickly it has been adopted, um, I'm really curious and excited to see sort of the next next couple of years um, and how it's going to accelerate. You know, I think um, there's definitely there's actually a, a data mesh learning uh, group that has sort of emerged on on Slack, um, where you can sort of you know catch great conversations by leaders like Jamak and others. Um, and and ask, actually ask them direct, uh, directly questions about data mesh or others. Um, and more and more data teams are um, are adopting that. So um, the platform team at Intuit actually recently wrote um, an, a series of articles about their experiences um, sort of on kind of their path towards data mesh. Um, so there's definitely more and more um, both organizations adopting uh, data mesh and also writing about that, which is very helpful for people kind of wanting to um, to learn about that and to, um, you know, sort of figure out how to adopt that or use that model for, for their own organizations. That's very exciting. And we'll definitely make sure to include some of these resources in the show notes as well. Finally, Bar, it was great to have you on the show. Do you have any call to action before we wrap up? 
Absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, I'm I always am happy to talk about sort of data science and data analytics best practices, and you know, always looking to sort of connect with folks. So feel free to to reach out. Um, you know, recommend sort of checking out our blog, um, MonteCarloData.com/blog, um, and sign up for a newsletter if you'd like to sort of keep up with all things data observability. Um, in general, just really excited about sort of where the the data industry is 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 heading, and so um, you know, really sort of looking forward to um, hearing what's top of mind. Mind um, and and um, and exploring, exchanging ideas. So feel free to reach out. We'll definitely make sure to link to all of these resources in the show notes. Now, with that in mind, thank you so much, Bar, for coming on today's episode of Data Framed. Absolutely, it was fun. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode of Data Framed. Thanks for being with us. I really enjoyed Barr's insights on the data quality challenges organizations face and how Monte Carlo solves them. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. Our next episode will be with Elad Cohen, VP of Data Science at Riskified, on how data science is being used to fight fraud in e-commerce. I hope it will be useful for you, and we hope to catch you next time on Data Framed.